This podcast is part of the You Haven't Heard This Productions and Publications Network. For more great shows and blogs and vlogs, please visit www.yhhtmpc.com. It's about uh, a man who does a deal with forces of darkness uh, in pursuit of the ultimate ex- uh, experience, the ultimate physical, sensual experience, um, and gets torn apart for his troubles. I thought I'd gone to the limits. I hadn't. The Cenobites gave me an experience beyond the limits. Pain and pleasure. Indivisible. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. They are ageless experts in uh, the art of refined pleasure and even more refined pain. They have made an aesthetic and indeed a lifestyle out of corrupting their own bodies, tearing them apart and reconfiguring them in various ways with hooks and various skinning devices. We've gone out of our way, Bob Keane's team and, and myself have gone out of the way to design monsters which are not going to really resemble anything that would have been seen before. That's my hope anyway. The voice you just heard in that interview, which I shamelessly stole off YouTube, chopped up and changed for my own purposes, is that of Clive Barker, author of Hellbound Heart and director of its on-screen counterpart, Hellraiser, which is the subject matter of today's podcast. Joining me to talk about all things Clive Barker, Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser is my co-host, Phil McCulloch, and Hellraiser Cenobite himself, Butterball, a.k.a. Simon Bamford. And welcome to the Adapted to Screen podcast, a podcast where we take a book and its on-screen counterpart and we dissect them, we compare them and have a little bit of banter in in between. Joining me this week, as always, I have my co-host, Phil McCulloch. Hello, Phil. How are you? Richie, hello to you. I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Yes, I'm fantastic, thank you. Um, And also joining me, hopefully, after a lot of technical difficulties, which our listeners won't be able to hear because I'll have perfectly edited this, but joining me is Simon Bamford. Hello, Simon. Welcome to the show. I trust you are well. I'm I'm very good. I'm hoping you can still hear me. Interestingly enough, when Clive wrote this, there was no technology. There was no internet. If you wanted to do an interview with somebody who sat in a room, and chatted to them <laughs> better times better times easier easier times easier times <laughs> indeed <laughs> indeed well let's swiftly go into uh, the author's bump uh, Clive Barker was born in 1952 in Liverpool he's an English playwright author and film director who came to prominence in the mid-90s with a series of short stories, The Book of Blood. Other things that Clive has done uh, in his filmography uh, include uh, 1987's Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, Nightbreed, Candyman, Lord of Illusions, and for maybe the millennials, The Midnight Meat Train as well. And that is the reason why we're talking to Simon today about one of Clive's books, The Hellbound Heart, which was turned into the film Hellraiser, as Simon had a, we would say, a starring role, Simon, in uh, Hellraiser 1 and Hellraiser 2. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun. We, we, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. We'd, uh, we'd still be being talked about 38 years later. 
crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Simon, um, can you uh, just give us a just give us a brief overview of what you're up to at the moment? Yes. Um. So I'm 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 um executive producer and I also uh, am an actor on a, a, a six part series for Amazon Prime called Dark Duties Presents, which is a little bit like a UK version of American Horror Story mixed with Black Mirror and The Twilight Zone. I watched episode one the other day. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> episode one was uh, very rough and ready because we, we, we did it with virtually no no budgets. But interestingly enough, we did have quite... We had five members of the Hellraiser cast on that. On that. Yes. And, and you know what? I know... Is it Barbie Wilde, is it? Who That's played, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, I noticed her straight away. I was like... She's at Hellraiser. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, me and my girlfriend kind of liked those. Uh, was it a take on the Agatha Christie's? Then there was one. I think there was a kind of yes. similar kind of take. Yeah, it was kind of, we always describe it as Agatha Christie meets Saw. <laughs> well, most definitely. And I've got, uh, I have to say, I was really impressed with Bruce Jones. I've only ever really known him as Les Battersby. And I watched that. I was like, he could actually act. <laughs> yeah. And Bruce, like me, has been in all five episodes that we've shot so far. Um, so I've played, uh, in that one, he plays this uh, car salesman. And in episode two, I play his wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, episode three, he carves me up on a table. Um, it's just, it gives you a kind of feel feel for it. But it's some of them are comedy. Some of them are very dark and actually quite disturbing in, in, in a very... Uh, deep way and and uh quite um upsetting so they're they're, they're a good kind of mixture of uh, of stuff um and, and then on top of that i've done a, a horror anthology film called mosaic which should come out next year 2023 which is about uh, a police officer trying to work out how these seemingly disconnected murders are connected because there's something that is connecting them and that yes so that was fun we filmed that in south end on sea oh very exciting uh, i must say anyone who is listening anyone who's listening to the four listeners that normally listen uh, definitely go and check out dark ditties uh, on amazon uh, simon a quick few questions before we move on uh, to discuss the differences between the book and the film because from what i've read over the years it seems that you clive and a few of the other stars of the film were were, were quite close uh, before you made the film um so how did you actually meet clive barker and how did you end up uh, in hellraiser so um i went to drama school in north london a place called mountview which is based in crouch end and interestingly enough i was just been reading the hellbound heart just to quickly zoom forward to that and he mentions alexander road as being near the house where where hellraiser is happening Lud- ludovico street whatever it is um, and uh, so I'm thinking he's, he was probably using um, his house that he lived in at the time. Clive, uh, I'm jumping forwards and backwards. Clive lived just around the corner from uh, Mountview from this drama school. And he had recently moved down from London with Doug Bradley um, from Liverpool to start a experimental uh, fringe theatre company, which he was writing and directing and performing in um, at the time. And he came to see a production of King Lear that I was doing. At, um, uh, we did a, a, a production, uh, a Japanese kabuki version of King Lear when I was at drama school. And he came to see it and loved, loved what I was doing and asked to meet me afterwards. And so we met and we got on. And then he asked me when I graduated if I'd like to join the Dog Company, which was the name of the uh, the, the French theatre company, um, which I did. 
um, on graduation, which is where I met um, Doug Bradley as well. Uh, Clive decided then to take a back seat from the acting and just concentrate on the directing and the writing. And also in the in the company at that time was um, Oliver Parker, who plays the Removal Man in Hellraiser One and Two, and is also in Nightbreed, and has gone on to have quite a, a very successful career in uh, in the film industry as a film director. During the films, uh, you were in a lot of makeup, and I can imagine it took uh, a very long time. How many days were you on set, and how long were your shoots? So, um, the, the shoot of the film itself took three months, and we would be called in for a day here and a day there, so maybe one or two days a week over those three months we would be called in just for, for the days that we were needed. Some days, because the, the four of us would be called in to make up for around four or five in the morning because the makeup took so long to put on, especially um, Doug's. And it was a very young special effects company, so they were they were keen to get everything right. In fact, everybody on the, everybody on the Hellraiser shoot was probably in their 20s, so it was a very young company. And so we were called in. Uh, four or five in the morning and I can't remember the original question <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just uh, it was just a case of uh, uh, how many days you actually were oh yeah yeah. For it and, yeah yeah so sometimes yeah we'd be in at like four in the morning sometimes there was the odd day where we were still there at like six seven at night and then somebody was sheepishly sheepishly sent through to say to us because um, we once we were in the makeup like kind of seven eight in the morning we were then in the makeup and it was super glued to our face with surgical super glue <laughs> and um for me and nick who played chatterer we were once we were in it we were blind deaf and dumb because there were for me there were no eye holes for nick there were no eye holes there were no ear holes in my makeup and uh, our our mouths had all these sets of um rotting teeth in them so oh, uh God, that's terrible <laughs> yeah it was it was like sensory deprivation from like seven eight in the morning for me and um but yeah occasionally we'd sit there till six in the evening and they come through and say sorry we're not going to get to your scenes to get today <laughs> oh i demand i demand yeah. my scenes to well, be done immediately to, to, to be honest um doug became our like union rep and after a few <laughs> like we, we had quite a few days where we'd be sitting there for like hours and hours and hours which is normal on a film set but not when you you're blind deaf and dumb no of and course. uh he he did actually put his foot down eventually, which we all thought was very brave because, like him, it was the first film we worked on. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what was acceptable behaviour, but it, it was unacceptable. Um, and and Clive, I remember one day came through with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a straw um, because uh, <laughs> because they were worried that anything that we ate or drank that w- would come out in our pores and melt the glue, and then the makeup would all fall off. So we used to we used to smell the cooked breakfasts um, when the crew arrived at kind of seven eight in the morning. Uh, but that we weren't allowed to eat it. <laughs> oh, no, that, that 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 is that is pure torture. Yeah. Just following on from that, you say that I think you said it was what uh, was it a three month shoot? Did you say? Yeah. Everything seems uh, quite fast paced with the Hellraiser because when the book was released, I think the book was released in 1986, and then mm-hmm. it went into filming in 1987. So clearly, the book got picked up very quickly, got put into production very quickly. And the actual film was made quite quickly. It's like from 1987, as uh, 1986 to 1987, the, the book being released to the film being finished. I'm guessing that um, that was uh, because Clive had been writing the screenplays for two movies before Hellraiser um, for the same company. 
Uh, Rawhide Rex, I think, was uh, one previous to that. Yes, Rawhide Rex, and I can never remember the other one. And he persuaded the uh, film company to let him direct the next one. And I think that's probably just that that book happened to be happening at the same time. And he thought, well, this is the one I'm going to I'm going to go for. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, Underworld in 1985, and then Rawhide Rex in 1986 and then into Hellraiser because one of the other questions was I know that Clive obviously directed the film but did he write the script for the film as well? Yes yeah he, he wrote the, the screenplay for, for Hellraiser 1 and for Nightbreed um, as well as have, uh, obviously the source material the books. So do you know and and this is going into what we're going to talk about in the podcast now do you know why he changed certain things because I, mean, I know that we spoke probably off air that you already discovered that Nancy wasn't uh, his daughter. Yeah Kirsty Kirst- I was amazed. Kirsty, sorry, Nancy. Sorry, I'm thinking not right now. I'm sure it's sorry, Kirsty. <laughs> I was just reading. I was just reading it and thinking, hang on a minute. Kirsty seems to be like in love with. It's really weird. In love <laughs> with this guy Rory, and I'm thinking, well, in the film, Rory is actually is the name of her boyfriend in the film. I'm thinking, so how come Rory's arranging all this removals that's happening? And then I'm thinking, no, hang on a minute. This is this is the guy that Julia has got married to. This is Frank's brother. is called Rory. It's all very confusing, which means that Kirsty isn't related to... Rory Stroke Larry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for helping me out. It gets complicated, doesn't it? I, I'm, I'm thinking that certain things seem to make a lot of sense what, what what i always loved about his screenplay was how linear it was how everything in there needs to be there is there for a reason there's no padding there's no stuffing it's everything is there for a reason to lead on and to to move the narrative forward and i think maybe he made those decisions when he was writing up I'm, I'm kind of speaking for him and i shouldn't do that but it would make sense if they had that kind of relationship and it would richen the the relationship maybe between because you think well how come why is kirsty there if she's also got a crush on rory why has she been invited I and mean, why hasn't julia kind of bumped her off before the story's even started not bumped her off but kind of kind of made sure that you know she's not invited to dinner parties Indeed. Okay. So, well, Simon, thank you very much for that little bit of insight there. But let's move on into uh, the how. No, no part. Philip, don't oh. move on. Oh, I've got a question. Oh. You've been oh, speaking for ages. Oh, I want to talk. You piece of shit. Go on. Then. Um, <laughs> I've only just found out. I haven't watched Hellraiser two, but I've just found out that you were in that also. I presume the same character. Yeah. Uh, did Did you have any lines in Hellraiser two? Um, no, I had lines in Hellraiser one. But they cut. They cut them because when they glued my uh, teeth in, they realised that I couldn't actually say any of the lines. (laughs) And because when we started to film it, it was a very low-budget film, they didn't think they'd have the the funds to actually go into a studio and do ADR um, overdubbing the character. So they had a big discussion about it, and then they thought, no, we can't afford to do this, so we're going to take all of his lines. Went on the day um, the day when um, they realised that I couldn't actually say the lines, and they're all plosives. Perhaps we prefer your P's and B's, and if you can't put your lips together, you can't say P's or B's. Yeah, so uh, they, they cut all my lines, and they, well, they gave them to the, the female Cenobites. See, now I'm thinking maybe that would have been more effective because you're a tormented soul, a tormented demon with like all these... Uh, afflictions well maybe you know you, you, you wouldn't be able to talk properly and it would have, you'd have had to have some subtitles underneath they might have come across yeah. really well that way maybe I'll just, which, who knows 
Richie, where were you 30 years ago? I could have I could have oh, used that excuse. I could have done that. I could have said, look, don't worry if it doesn't sound clear. You know, this guy and actually when you when you read the descriptions in the Halban heart of the Cenobites, they've got bits of, of flesh kind of sewn across bits of flesh and other bits torn out. It's yeah. quite it's very uh, a vivid description of of how and, and they wouldn't be able to talk properly. You're absolutely right. Wind. Oh damn you, Richie, you should have been in my past. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to uh, add insult to injury uh, there, Simon, uh, they took your lines away in the first film and I think in the second film when you when you regress to your human form it's not even you is it no that's right yeah that's right <laughs> i was i was only 25 when we filmed hellraiser and i was really skinny uh one of the reasons i got cast a was i was one of clive's friends but um they, they wanted to, uh butterball had this big deep gash in his stomach now uh, and it was a really deep wound so they needed somebody inside the costume who was really skinny so that they could build this fiberglass stomach with a big wound in it so there was no way anybody would believe that i would actually you know that butterball was ever this kind of skinny 25 year old in the same way that nick turned into a little boy yeah we were i was gonna say yeah didn't didn't chatter turn into a little child (laughs) yeah that's right one moment to actually get our faces seen and they even took that away from us so, uh, how many Comic Con events have you had to do? Oh, freaking hell! Comic well, not Comic Con, <laughs> Comic Con exactly, uh, but actual conventions around the world. Oh heavens, a um, hundred maybe. Really? Over the wow. years, sadly, none in the last two years or three years is it's becoming um, because of COVID. So yeah, that's been a bit distressful. I'm sure those bookings will start coming in though. Well, I hope so. You know, I just um. I just spent a year before COVID hit getting myself what they call a global entry pass to America because I was going there so often, which means when you go into America, you just sail through, you know, a bit like when you come into England, you just put your finger on a scanner and it says, yeah, welcome. Uh, It's taken me a year to get this thing and I haven't used it yet. (laughs) And it cost me a freaking load of money and it runs out in two years time. So I'm hoping they come in soon. Did you ever imagine when you first started working on the the film that it had become such a cult classic? I mean, it, even today it's been what, that, that was two thousand nothing to nineteen eighty seven. So it's uh, maths a while later. Thirty five years. And it's it's still as iconic today as it was then. Did you ever imagine that it'd become what what it's become? No, none, none of us did. Not not even Clive. In fact, Clive admitted. And I think we had a budget of seven hundred thousand, which um, even in those days wasn't much to start with. It did get upped. But even Clive said at the time he was he was just hoping that somebody in influence would see this little film that had been made and give him some more work. None, none of us thought it would be the success it was, and 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 there are there are a few people I think it owes its success to. What uh, one is is definitely obviously Clive for writing and directing it and making it such a tight film. Uh, another one and somebody he gives huge credit to is Claire Higgins, who plays uh, Julia, who does this marvelous performance of of taking us down this this kind of film noir. It's kind of almost a performance from the 1930s. It's just beautiful. But to persuade the audience that this could be possible is, is a huge thing for an actor to be able to do, and she does it effortlessly. And uh, Christopher Young's score, I think those are the three things that uh, I know there's a story of, of, of um, Christopher Figg, who the producer and Clive 
sitting in a in a, a screening room the first time they saw it with Christopher Young's score on it and they and they knew then that they got something that was going to be very successful and it was his score which is just superb sublime this waltz this love story he just gets everything so right so yeah those three people i think are the ones that really make the film work so it's at this point where i ask uh, richie uh, when he first saw the film hellraiser well phil for the first time in the history of doing this podcast <laughs> i can actually say that i knew about this film and watched it uh, before you mentioned it to me two weeks ago absolutely. um I, th- <laughs> I first probably watched this film when i was about 12 or 13 which was not a good idea Honest to God. I was a lot um, younger. I think I was about 10. <laughs> 10? Shit the bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd seen back in the day, and I'm sure, Simon, I'm talking uh, to you on this one, like films that were made or, you know, that, that were premiered in America never came over to Britain for two, three, maybe even four years sometimes. Uh-huh. And there was a big pirate video uh, club, I suppose. Most people had all the pirate videos, and I remember my mom had like Hellraiser, she had like, like Nightmare on Elm Street one, two, three, four, and I'd just get up in the morning and just put them on and watch them while she was in wow. bed. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely fucking terrified me as a kid. You'd be surprised the amount of the amount of people that we meet at conventions who saw it around that age, which is perhaps another reason that they've been so successful is that people saw them at such a gullible and, and uh, gentle age where they were never meant to be seen. Do you remember Mary Whitehouse? Uh, it was like a campaigner for uh, yes, keeping yes, I do keeping yeah. filth out of out of society. She she was a big campaigner against Hellraiser and and uh, well, they had a, a name for them in the day. Uh, oh yeah, it was like a scare. They called them scare films or something like that. Was it? Um, yeah, I can't, I can't remember what it was. Uh, video nasties. Video, video nasties. nasties. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, we we were one of the top video nasties. But that's actually quite funny, isn't it, uh, Simon? Because I think uh, if I, from from what I've read correctly, uh, Hellraiser Two was was greenlit halfway through the filming of Hellraiser, like the that the powers that yeah. be were watching the dailies and went, we must make another one. Where like you think today, people would be like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen ever. How on <laughs> earth could this be made? What is all this ripping of flesh and of bone? It just, it, it, it just seems incomprehensible that people were like, this is great. We would we need more. I think it, I think it was quite um, in a way Hellraiser was quite a trailblazer because serious horror films before then were getting banned left, right, and centre, and even some of the whimsical ones were, were getting banned. And this, for, for its time, if, if I remember, remember right from what I've read up, um, there were certain aspects of the film that got banned. It's like the rats being knocked to the wall. That had to be. Um, that, that was a, that was a problem back in back in 1987, I think, and you had yeah. certain other uh, uh, like cli- clips that had to be cut out, like exploding heads and stuff. Yeah, as the the way I remember it, uh, and Clive talking about it was that he deliberately put in stuff that he knew the censors wouldn't allow, betting that if he put in enough of that stuff, they would cut those and leave everything that he wanted and he needed to make the film work, and. As far as I'm aware, he, they cut everything that he expected them to cut and left everything um, that he needed. And that was a very, very smart... I mean, he's a very smart man, but it was a very smart thing to do because he was still pushing the boundaries enormously for for, for, for the time. And, and, and also, it was an intelligent film. You're, you're right. Um, in the, the 80s, there were a few things coming out 
Um, but there was an awful we'd gone down this rabbit hole of uh, of Hammer becoming kind of comedy and not really taking itself very seriously and then there was there were a the few Nightmare on Elm Street there were a few things there was Alien happening at the time there was some really big stuff happening and they were all groundbreaking and, and Hellraiser I think is definitely groundbreaking in that rather than having this kind of happy family of teenagers having a party you've got this dysfunctional family that don't like each other there's so many things in there which you just it would it would be impossible to to conceive but it works and and it's down to Clive that he made it work so let's move on uh, before we start talking about uh, the book let's just have a look at the cast of the film so we had Andrew Robinson who played Larry uh, Claire Higgins who uh, Simon just mentioned as Julia Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty, Sean Chapman as Frank. Notable mentions to Doug Bradley as as the lead Cenobite, um, Nicholas Vince as Chattering Cenobite, and of course Simon Bamford as what? What were you? What were you called in the first film? Were you called Buttable Cenobite, or were you just other Cenobites? I think I was the fat Cenobite. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't actually in the film and in the book they didn't actually have names. I think the the names no. are added to the Cenobites by like people outside of the uh, like fans and people like that afterwards. Because within the book and within the film there was nothing. No, in the script it just said lead Cenobite, um, female Cenobite, fat Cenobite. And I can't remember what Nick's chatter, chat- yeah, chattering Cenobite. But it, it wasn't in the script in the original oh, script. Okay. I can't remember uh, that that kind of came out of the makeup. And in fact, our, our names came out of like Butterball and, and Chatterer and Pinhead. They were the nicknames that the, the crew gave us, and they kind of stepped stuck. I say because from what I from what I've uh, again from what I've read over the years, it was Julia. Where she was the star. That was yeah. that was the intention. The intention was Julia was a star, and you guys are the Cenobites. Obviously, you know, I mean, screen time and even book time. You know, very little screen time and book time. Uh, and it was Julia who was the star. But before we before we get distracted, let's move on to the differences between the book and the film. So, um, the the book opens uh, similar to the film, where Frank is where Frank's got the box. And um, we go into a little bit of a backstory where Frank has been trying to get hold of the box because of a man called Kircher or Kirchner, who's convinced him that because Frank is bored with all of the pleasures of the world, he needs more pleasures. And Kirchner's told him, go and find this box and you'll get all the pleasures you could ever dream of. And Frank's in this house, well, uh, as we know to be the house, but... We don't know. It is that the actual house uh, where uh, Larry and Julie are going to move into. And eventually he opens the box. And I thought this was very interesting as the first time I'd read the book. When when the Cenobites come, I think, first of all, they had a lot of dialogue, which surprised me. And obviously Frank was very surprised that there wasn't like 20 virgins waiting for him and they were these disfigured. <laughs> well, I just want to point out before you carry on, Phil, that... Uh, if I was Frank, and I guarantee for a fact, if you speak to my friends and they read the book and what, and, and they probably asked in the film, they would say, "Yeah, you, you're Frank. You're definitely Frank." If you were ten years ago, I would have even said, "Yeah, that 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 that's definitely me." If you'd have given me the box yeah. ten years ago, telling me you've got the theologians of the Order of Gash, I'd have gone, "Give me that box." <laughs> <laughs> the question I was going to ask you, Simon, uh, was was 
Kirshner ever kind of discussed uh, for the film? Because he's, to me, that character seems like either he knows what's going on with the box or he was some kind of uh, submissive to the Cenobites to get people to open the box. No, um, he was never mentioned in any discussions I ever had. Um, And and again, I think this must have been a, a, a decision that Clive... You know what? I think somebody shoot me down, but I have a feeling Raiders of the Lost Ark came around around the same time and there's a sequence in that which is very similar in this kind of asian marketplace so i'm i'm guessing that i think clive maybe saw that and thought oh this would be a great place for the kirshner character although he's never mentioned to be like handing over this box and it's a very actually it's the first time i've thought about this but it's very very similar sequence mm, that, that, yeah that, that, that's very interesting the, the one thing that always confused me was that in the film they always talk about pleasure and pain but all yeah. I ever see is pain I never see any pleasure it's just torture and pain and I've always <laughs> wondered where is this pleasure but I think in the book it describes it very well where they heighten all of his senses to you know to the maximum yeah oh, that sequence where where he first where they where he starts to get I mean, that is just a, be- a beautiful sequence of words that the Sky's put together with. Like, like you say, every sense is being heightened to, to the maximum. He's hearing the whole world, and then he's closing his eyes to try and cut that out, and he feels like his eyes, and then he's seeing his whole past, and it's just he's just overwhelmed with this with this rush gosh it's very interesting isn't it there's there's a drug which is around uh, on the gay scene called poppers which is amyl nitrate oh yeah been there done that yeah we're familiar with poppers yeah <laughs> do you know what i'm just thinking that, that, that everything he he describes is a bit like amyl nitrate <laughs> i'm wondering if that was an influence i'm pretty much mm, guessing that that will be an influence that kind of huge rush of, of everything that you get from amyl nitrate sorry i'm not i'm not advocating drugs here no, no absolutely but, um, i'm all for them we do every episode yeah <laughs> we do every episode limitless was uh, our last episode and that was just a drug-filled orgy wasn't it yeah um, <laughs> but the um, but the uh, the difference between the book and the film here as well. I think in the film, um, Frank's heart is underneath the floorboards, and it's the blood from from Larry's hand that yeah. kind of starts to regenerate. And we're in the book. Frank decides that the only thing he could possibly do in this moment is have a quick wank, and uh, it's the semen that is left on the floorboards mixed with Larry's blood that then brings him back, which I thought was quite bonkers. Oh, <laughs> done! I didn't get well done. You 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 no no. <clears throat> Yes, he didn't. He didn't have a quick wank. He, he just no, put he, his hand on the banisters, went into the room, and it was his blood that brought him no, back. No, no, no. But no, Larry, no, but the brother has uh, Frank has had a wank. Uh, oh, he, he definitely had a wank. Yeah. It, no, no. Uh, he did. In the book, he did, and and yeah. that was his semen was on the floor. And in the book, it's the blood mixed with the semen that brings. I didn't know that. Uh, you should pay more attention. That's why I'm here. You know, um, Clive, Clive I, I, I'm still friends with Clive and I still chat with him and he's talking with Shudder at the moment. And uh, there, that would have been one of the things where um, New World Entertainment would have gone, no line, line drawn through that. We cannot have <laughs> wanking or semen in this film, especially in 1986, <laughs> six, seven. 
Uh, and I, you know, he's still having those conversations with film studios now. <laughs> but I, I think I think that was, um, but that was very telling, especially in the film. I mean, of of course, at the start, Frank's there. Frank opens a box. Frank's ripped apart by by, by chains. Uh, but in the mm. book, he has obviously a longer a longer part because obviously he has that conversation with the Cenobites, and they seem almost like conversational rather than, you know, the very much sound bites that you get from the Cenobites in the movie. The very yeah. much, you know, you open the box, we came. They're actually having full conversations with him. They are, and they, they seem, and he des- he describes them as being almost pathetic and and disappointing. So, certainly from Frank's point of view that he, he was expecting something completely different. But he's seeing these characters who are, I, I think that's something you do get from the film, that, that, that uh, it is just what they do, you know. Um, and, and Doug always describes, he says, the Cenobite is not the monsters, Julie is the monster, because we are doing what we are bound to do, which is to mm. bring pleasure from pain or suffering. We don't necessarily get pleasure from it ourselves, but that is our job. And I think that that comes across in the book and they try to come across in the film. But uh, of course, with all the big, the, the great thing about both films is that we have huge entrances with lots of dry ice and smoke and... <laughs> So it kind of ups us a bit. Well, there was one thing that there was one thing I found curious, and I don't know, um, I don't know how much uh, or how many of the Hellraisers you actually watched. Pers- obviously, not personally. Of course, you watch them personally. You watch them with your eyes. Uh, but I don't know if you ever saw any of the later Hellraisers, or at least the most recent one, uh, Hellraiser Judgment. No, I, 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 the last one, the last one I saw was uh, four, uh, which I, which was the last cinematic release. Uh, but what I found yeah. interesting in the book, uh, Frank says shouldn't there be five of you and uh, i think the lead center boy who is who is actually female uh that's another massive difference well andro- androgynous not actually female you're not sure if she's male or female it's kind uh, of androgynous okay. which that's is fair enough which is something uh, definitely female because kind of- i was attracted to her <laughs> <laughs> but um in uh, in that scene frank says shouldn't there be somebody else and then the lead center boy says yes the auditor they'll be with us soon the- but, um, the engineer. The, oh, sorry, the engineer. The engineer. I do apologise. Oh, the engineer. I thought it was the auditor. The engineer is the, is the character that is a little bit like a scorpion with a huge head that kind of comes crawling down there. That's right, in number two. Yeah, and, and number one. Number one. Um, when when Kirsty finally in the hospital. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. yes when she's in yes, the hospital and right. she's running down the corridor, that's the engineer that's chasing her. Ah, okay. That's that's great news. So, so that's where we are. So then, uh, Frank is taken by the uh, by the Cenobites to experience all of his pain, uh, and then um, the kind of the film and the book kind of marry up a little bit where Frank and Julia, uh, sorry, uh, Larry and Julia. Let's just call him Larry because I don't want to call him Rory because I'll get confused. Uh, yeah, Larry yeah. and Julia. Uh, Larry and Julia come to the house now. In the movie, whenever I watch the film, I just see that house as a complete. Like, uh, like it should be quarantined. It's filthy. It's disgusting. They've got like yeah. rats and maggots and like. Yeah. But in, but in the book, he doesn't sound that bad. So was that was that something that Clive well, decided I'm going to make it so hideously disgusting? <laughs> I think in in the book it's kind of glossed over, but that there's certainly no really descriptive thing of 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 how disgusting it is. I think yeah, I think Clive just kind of went with it I mean it really is. It's disgusting. There are maggots crawling out of food. Yeah, it's oh it's it's but the whole film seems dirty, if you're not a yeah. like, You seem to forget there's a whole demon in there as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean the house has a kind of um 
character of its own in the film. And I think, again, all, all kudos to Clive for creating this this house, which is disgusting. And and of course, um, because he's he's put in these things of insects and maggots and the things which we all find disgusting, he can then do the bits later where Kirsty has this bucket of maggots thrown over her from um, from one of the dead corpses while she's trying to be quiet in the film oh yes in the uh, in the spare room and she she did a uh, blesser ashley ashley had a, a whole bucket of live maggots thrown over her i'll <laughs> <laughs> be stuck in her ear for days that's, oh. probably, that's, that's a bit of an inside scoop that probably not many people know no that's very true she said they were everywhere they were like everywhere it's like oh, i'm a celebrity getting me out of here but way before that started <laughs> wow and obviously what you mentioned earlier on Simon is the revelation that Kirsty isn't actually Larry's daughter in the book she's just a friend which uh, which took me a while to kind of figure out I was like well shouldn't she be a daughter like what's going on here there's a, a, a platonic relationship I mean maybe she wanted it to be more but clearly Larry was just like just stupid and couldn't see it. I was really astounded. I, I kept reading it and rereading it and thinking, she's talking about Rory stroke Larry's winning grin and that's the reason that she came back. And I'm thinking, this doesn't sound like a kind of father-daughter relationship. And it, it isn't <laughs> in the book. It is, it is that, you know, it, she's secretly in love with him. And I think maybe Clive revisited the book when he started writing the screenplay and decided that there was room for improvement here and, and things would be much clearer if it was the daughter and and being Clive of course he was absolutely correct I can't imagine that character working as well if it was just some random lady who was yeah because I think I, I think the audience would be looking at her going oh you know, like, like not kind of maybe no compassion or no yeah. kind of uh, sympathy for that character whereas if it's if it's the daughter who doesn't like the evil stepmom but when she turns yeah. out to be an actual evil stepmom then she's got a bit more gravitas and support uh, uh behind her there yeah and absolutely and it's something we can all relate to we can all relate to um family and clive's always been very good at, at, at pinpointing the things that the un uh, universal the love hate um passion and, and family. Yeah. I watched an interview with Clive earlier, and he was saying about how when he writes his books, you know, he doesn't want it to be like the same for everyone. Everybody has their own picture, a different picture, their own interpretation. Am I the only one who turned this film into a BDM sex horror? Because that that that's how it can. It's like from the start, from the start, she turns up at this house and she goes around remembering that 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 time she had some really good dick upstairs, and and for the rest of the film, that that that's what it's all about. She's just remembering this one time she had some amazing dick and she's going out because she wants it back again. And she, you just see her in the room. So, I mean, when she get when she gets caught by her husband, she, she she's actually in there remembering that good time. She's trying to recreate and, and relive it. And she's basically just a really horny person. She's not in love. She only ever, ever had one experience with him. But she wants that again. And as soon as he gets his skin, straight into bed. No fucking about and then you got the BDM with all the hooks and everything. It's just, just everything seems sexual about it to me. Yeah, that that'd be Clive for you. But I'm guessing you're not a romantic, <laughs> Richie, because it is. Clive wrote it as like most things he actually writes are actually love stories, and it's definitely it's how far you would go if you are passionately in love, or maybe further than that. But how much you would do for the person you're in love with, and she's in love. But, uh, but yes, uh, as far as being um, sadomasochism, I know Clive 
went a long way um, to research the film and, and went to a lot of uh, masochism clubs at the time in London to find out where the bar was. And it, it, it's 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 easy these days to kind of look back and go, yeah, yeah, well, there was this, there was that. But people didn't have body piercings in 1986. It, it was completely unheard of. The only thing people pierced were their ears. And then there were rules about, you know, which one you had pierced if you're a straight man or a... Uh, so the, 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 there were no other piercings apart from in these very, very minority sadomasochistic clubs, which Clive visited... Um, and, and, and I remember when we were filming, they had uh, lots of books of African artwork because obviously in Africa they, they, there were lots of different piercings and things. But that I, I think Hellraiser was one of the things that started the whole piercing industry, to be honest, because it made it interesting and fashionable and a bit naughty and sexual. Could you imagine going into like a like a barber's or a, you know a tattooist and going? Can you make me look like one of them Cenobites? <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. I'm just I'm just imagining Clive being in one of these clubs and seeing someone that he recognises and them going to him, what are you doing in here? And him going, uh, research? <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> to be honest, anybody who knew Clive in the 1980s would not be surprised to find him anywhere like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, moving swiftly on, um, <laughs> I think the um, the book and the film kind of marry up mostly uh, from once they've moved in. Uh, you know, uh, Julia's taking to cleaning the house. The removal men come in. Obviously, Julia finds Frank's belongings and has you know those those thoughts of years gone past and. At this point, you kind of start feeling sorry for Julia because, you know, clearly she's married Larry and, you know, it, it's probably not the life she wanted to be in. And, you know, she has this reminiscence of that time with Frank, but clearly she's been faithful since because otherwise she wouldn't particularly be so forlonging about that one experience, if you know what I mean, which I thought myself, I mean, that, that's just my opinion, at least. And then obviously we get to the point where uh, Larry's bleeding. Uh, that kind of brings Frank back to life. But for me, what what, what I found amusing was uh, how quickly Julia put together that, that her dead lover is hiding in a wall and only if she can get him out of the wall, they can be together again. Have you not noticed that Julia, she is Frank, she's like the female Frank, she, she's fed up with this life, the, the, this life has nothing to offer her anymore, the pleasures of this of this life, she doesn't even like her friends and she used to, it says in the book that she used to class these people as friends and have a laugh with them and enjoy their company, doesn't enjoy that anymore and it's like she's doing what Frank did, she's after something more something more outside of what the, uh, the, the this this world can provide that's exactly the way i read it actually uh, richie that that um he he'd obviously decided that he needed more that there was just wasn't enough out of life and and she there's a there's a section in the book where she talks about how how bored she is of these people getting drunk downstairs and how banal they all are and she she does want more and i, I that's the start of clive beginning to write um her her world isn't too dissimilar to Frank's and and and, draw, and kind of drawing them closer together so it's not so surprising when uh, when they do finally get together and I think that's why when she's in that room and he, he, he turns up as a living corpse that she's not so horrified that she runs away and she can't face him because under any normal circumstance anybody else you see a living corpse 
you're going to run, you're going to <laughs> shit your pants, and you're going to run. But she's come to this place now. Th- this is something exciting. This is something different. This is something out of the norm. This is this is it's something that she, she can. I'm, I'm whistling through my fucking teeth, but it's something she can pursue. Yeah, I think it's the forbidden as well, isn't it? It's that whole thing of of what is forbidden. We 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 desire more. You tell somebody, you tell a kid, you can't have something. They want it more and more, and it's the same throughout life, and especially when it comes to kind of sex. You say you can't have this. Okay, I want that even more now. You know, I desire it. I need it. In the sequence, when Larry's blood uh, starts to bring Frank back to life, what production company do they use for that sequence when the body was being put back together? So, uh, again, it was Image Animation who did who did the prosthetic special effects for the Cenobites. Um, they did those sequences, and they what they did is they made... Uh, th- there were lots of different sections to that that whole sequence, but the one that I always love is that they made a wax version of the head and the arms and melted it yeah and then they they put a blowtorch on it and and melted it down so it melted into the floorboards and then they filmed it and they showed it backwards so it was kind of coming up that's very clever I heard that yeah it's so clever that is so clever and it's so effective this is the one thing I've got to say about um, Hellraiser that although occasionally in a few parts they have used CGI for like sparks around the box or something like that Uh um Everything else is all on camera, and because of the, the artistry and everything else that went into it, it still stands up today. It was fucking amazing. The the, the work and the, the the art behind everything that happened in that film, it still stands up. It was fucking amazing. And that scene, it's icon, it's an iconic scene where he comes back and you see him coming out the floorboards. And I heard that and heard that what you just said that that they created a wax version of it and then melted it and played it in reverse. Oh, that's fucking genius. How do you even come up with that? Well, I mean, in, in the day we didn't have CGI, we didn't have computers. So um, so the, you, you were talking about the kind of the little visual effects. They actually had to be painted on each frame of the film. Really? So that's how they did those. It wasn't they shouldn't have done generated. that. <laughs> no, they shouldn't. There's, there's a lot of people would say, yeah, that, that is the, probably the weakest part of it. However... However, saying that, if you go back to that time when you first watched it, when I first watched it, I didn't question it. I had no problem with it. Back then, any kind of CGI, we, we didn't question it. It was fine. However, today, you've got the best CGI in the world, and it's it's amazing, and we still and we question it. Now, it's, uh, yeah, it's a dinosaur. It looks like a dinosaur. It looks tangible. However, I know it's CGI, and it doesn't look real. But back then, you didn't question it. You didn't give a shit. Well, nothing surprises us anymore because anything is possible. Whereas back in the day, everything had to be... I, I did some work on the, the Fright Night films. And hmm. <laughs> some of the stuff that they did on those and the chemicals they used, they were like these acids that were like burning through the technicians. <laughs> People died of cancer because of that film. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's the only way you could do it was, was you could work out physically how you could do it and then film it. There was no other magic way of doing it with computers because computers didn't exist. I mean, they did exist, but not for that reason. Uh, so, uh, a very good question, Simon. Uh, the one person I think that always gets overlooked is uh, Oliver Smith. Who was yeah. Frank? Was Frank the monster? Now, yeah. um, was he was he cast to be Frank the monster because he was like thinner than Sean Chapman, and that way, like he looked without the skin, he would look thinner. Or was it just a case of Sean Chapman said, "You're not covering me in tomato ketchup"? <laughs> 
No, he he was cast because he's an incredibly thin actor. He still is, to be honest. And and bless him, um, he was in the the uh, Dark Ditties um, episodes oh. one and three. Oh, who was he? he was, who was he in number he one? The, number one, he was the butler. Oh no way! Who welcomes everybody to the house? Yeah, I didn't recognise him with his skin on. Oh. But if you listen to his voice, because it's <laughs> it's his voice as well, but he's got this wonderful gravelly voice, and it's his voice that Frank speaks through. And oh, also, so, so in got... in a dark deeds, because I think I think you said there was five of you. So there was yourself, there was Nicholas Vince, Barbie yeah. Wilde, Oliver yeah. Smith, and who was the fifth one? Oh, that's a good question. There were five of us. Oh, sorry, I've uh, I've stumped you there. Do you know there were five of us? I can't remember who the fifth one was. The special effects guy, uh, one of the special effects guys from. Oh, um, okay, yeah. So he, he did all the special effects. Yes. Um, so okay, yeah. So moving on anyway. Otherwise, we would talk about every single moment. Uh, so uh, let's let's fast forward. Oh no! To... I, sorry, oh. I'm tell a, I tell a lie. I just remembered it was. It was from <laughs> Ken Cranham. <laughs> oh, it was also the special effects guy. Uh, but Ken Cranham from Hellraiser 2, who played uh, Dr. Chenard. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, and he's he's in all... all he, He's a recurring character on all of the Dark Ditties films. Yes, Ken. Was he uh, was he acting as well in uh, Dark Ditties Episode 1? Yes, uh, he was... Um, oh, it's difficult to say without being a spoiler, but he was the guy who invited everybody to the house. Oh, well, well that's not a spoiler, because he's in the... Fi- like, like, that's the reason they're all there. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not a spoiler, right. is it? Really? Yeah, he's the he's the owner of the mansion. Yeah, no, but I have to be careful. Yes, no, of course, right. of course, he's the owner of the mansion. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't. You know, it, it, well, I suppose you know, thirty five years, you know, later, I suppose you don't recognise certain people, do you? But um, oh, that's brilliant <laughs> stuff. So let's move on to the point where Julia realises that Frank's alive. Obviously, she says, he says, go out and. Go out and get some people because I need a bit more blood. And she needs some dick. Well, to be fair, right, to be fair, in all honesty, as like a 10, 11 year old boy watching this film, I was like, Julia's hot. Like, and like, I feel really bad for the. And, and like, because I work in business now, uh, I work in sales and I do go away a lot, I, I'm always looking, going, are they getting Juliet? <laughs> you know, some bloke's talking to a bird <laughs> yeah. at a bar. Is he going to get Juliet? <laughs> but do you know what? Again, it's something that Clive is very clear-eyed on, is, is, is the victims that Julia picks in the film are people that we all know. We all relate to those people. We all know those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's very clean. The only difference in all of those pickups, and I, I can't remember in, in the film, was in the book where... Uh, she didn't want to do it anymore. And then that one bloke kind of harassed her outside. And she was uh-huh. like, well, come on, then you're going to get it. You are. You deserve it. I can't remember that being in the film. And maybe I overlooked it. Maybe it wasn't in the film. That's probably just the difference between the book and the film where I think Julie didn't want to do it. And because the guy was being really harassive outside, she was like, right, you'll learn your lesson, mate. I think the closest it got to that in the film was um, the guy who says, oh, what, well, you changed your mind. And oh yes, starts getting a bit narky with her, and you think, well, actually, he deserves it. I think even as the audience, you think, well, you're just being a bit of a prick now. <laughs> we all know what's coming. <laughs> Excuse and, the uh, pun. <laughs> and uh, obviously, uh, at this point, uh, we see Kirsty in the movie and in the book uh, notice Julia taking. Well, no. Uh, does she notice someone? Does she notice that she's like someone in the house in the book? She know she goes and knocks on the door in the book and notices a man's coat. 
where uh-huh. in the movie she notices him walk, her, her walking in with a man, at yeah. least. And then she does the thing that only you would think to do, break into the house to investigate, only to discover, like, half-dead Frank <laughs> in the attic. <laughs> Yeah, but you kind of would. I mean, you see, in that in that Maybe. scenario, the jealous girlfriend who wanted to have Rory stroke Larry all the time would true. break into the house. But probably the daughter Maybe. would too. So yeah, I think the daughter would too to protect her to protect her dad. Yeah. So I think this is this part in the book, this part in the film where Kirsty gets the box, and and Frank's very like scared of a hold in the box. I don't know. I mean, I I understand why because. It's the box, but is she going to work? You know, like is he thinking, what if she opens it? Like, is like, is that his first thought? Is it just he's probably worried that she's going to call them and them going to see him? I'd imagine that's my that's my that was my thought. That's certainly what I get. That's what I get from the film is that he's scared that he's he he's thinking that he's second. He, he's he's fooling the Cenobites. He's undermining them by coming back to life when he's never supposed to be. Just actually, just. One thing that's just come back in my mind about when he's first taken by the Cenobites is that um, he has this overwhelming sense of uh, emotions and then that all stops and there's this female Cenobite with her legs open welcoming him um, and she's sitting on a pile of skulls with with their brains kind of half rotting and he realises that she's going to fuck him rotten and destroy him. That puts a new spin on it, doesn't it? Yeah, her words were, have you stopped dreaming now? Let's begin. Yes. (laughs) Another sex part. Um, Just want to, just because talking on that, obviously he, he... Met the Cenobites and he was torn apart and he was killed. Now, Pinhead, and I, I, I assume it's the same for all the other Cenobites as well, they didn't suffer the same uh, fate he did. For Like Pinhead, for instance, his little write-up. During World War One, Elliot Spencer, which is who uh, Pinhead was originally, served as a captain in the British Expeditionary Force. He was charismatic and an eloquent man who could feel great empathy and compassion for those around him. However, after participating in one of the battles of Flanders, he loses his faith in humanity after witnessing the inhumanity enacted upon one another. He also loses his faith in God, whom he believed failed mankind. Captain Spencer did not believe he had the right to live after watching so many of his comrades perish in such a such a horrific manner. Suffering from the severe effects of post-traumatic stress disorder, the disillusioned and jaded Spencer wandered the earth indulging in an hedonistic lifestyle, turning to the baser methods of gratification for satisfaction and pleasure until finding the lament configuration in British India and finally understanding the true pleasures of pain and suffering. So that's where he became pinhead however pinhead didn't get torn apart and then have his head exploded and died so why did um frank die and not become a cenobite like the rest of the the others that is a very very good question and it's one that i've often wondered why certain people become cenobites and certain people become victims so cenobites are the high priests of hell and their duty is to torment and it's it's interesting in hellraiser 2 that I, it was always my criticism, not Hellraiser 2, Hellraiser 3, 
in that suddenly anybody could become a Cenobite. You go to a nightclub and you get a Cenobite by having a camera put in your head or a CD put in your head. That's Hollywood. That's Yeah, it's exactly that's Hollywood. But it, it felt in the first two films that we had this kind of gravitas that we were creatures that had maybe gone beyond that pleasure from pain and has passed some kind of test. Yeah, see, that this, this, this was my only theory. My only theory was that Frank, he had all these sensations and he couldn't cope with it and he didn't, he didn't appreciate it. Where, and, and because of that, that he was killed because he couldn't go on being that way. Whereas, I think it was Hellraiser 3 or 4, you, uh, one of the Hellraisers, you see Pinhead as he's created and you see him smiling and enjoying it and he kind of embraces, embraces it and he takes it on and lets it become part of him, whereas Frank didn't. I'm, and I'm thinking maybe that's the reason why. Maybe that was his penance, perhaps, for the war and everything that he saw. Maybe because he had a reason for seeking out what he sought out whereas frank is really just seeking out pleasure so his is is a very fickle very um low level desire whereas uh, pinhead's former captain was there because he had experienced all sorts of horrendous acts in 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 life and so there was a kind of a reason for him seeking out pleasure from pain rather than just self-gratification so maybe he, they, maybe the captain was was a deeper character which allowed him to go to another level but i'm guessing and if you're listening to this clive by any chance um <laughs> yeah just uh, a bit, just let us know <laughs> i mean i mean maybe uh maybe in the like especially with the four centibytes that we have in the first couple of films it could have been uh, a little bit of a callback to your dark Ditties episode one uh with the seven deadly sins you know, you've got, you know, you've got gluttony, so that could be butterball. You know, you've got, yeah. you know, lust, you've got greed, uh, sloth, that kind. You know, maybe that was a thing where the people who were most perpetuating the seven deadly sins who sought out uh, the box. Um, I think the problem we've got here, Phil, is that what we're doing is we're, 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 we're talking about it like it's actually real. And for the people who are listening, it's enough. not a real story. It's not a true story. No. <laughs> okay, so so let's move on to the fictional story and the fictional film. And I, and I think this is where really uh, the film kind of picks up a gear. So Ashley's got... that she, she runs out of the house, she picks up the box, she runs away and she ends up in a hospital. And I think uh, the book and the film mirror this quite well, where, you know, uh, she's in the hospital. The doctor says that you were holding this box. You wouldn't let it go. Ashley begins to play with the box. And I think this is where, yeah, this is where the film picks up because she ends up accidentally summoning the Cenobites. They come into the room. You get the iconic, uh, lines. You open the box. We came, uh, uh, no, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And she does a deal. And she does this deal with the Cenobites that she's going to give them Frank back. And I think that's uh, what Simon, you mentioned earlier on about the Cenobites maybe not being the good guys in a way. Because they're like, okay, we'll get this bad guy who's escaped our grasp, who, uh-huh. who's who's broke out of our prison, who's committing these crimes. We'll get him. Yeah, we'll do that deal. And I think that's where it kind of does ramp up slightly and especially when Kirsty goes back and finds out that Frank's dead there was that scene uh, in the movie where uh, Julia's I don't know whether she's having second thoughts maybe and she wants to have a little bit of sexy time with uh, Larry and then right, Frank comes out of the cupboard skinning the rat 
<laughs> it was just like, <laughs> this is ruining my sexy time, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but then, uh, in the end, obviously he takes he takes Larry's skin, and it isn't until the come to daddy line that that uh, Kirsty realizes that it is Frank and not Larry. This is where the film was a slave to the script, I think, because when she walks in and she sees him and he's got all that blood around his face and his ears are hanging off. Yeah, this is normal. And he's adjusting his eyes. He's fitting <laughs> his eyes back into the skin to make it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With that squelching noise. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's a quick question, actually, Simon, and, and maybe I've missed it in the 75 times that I've seen the film. When Frank accidentally kills Julia and then he he decides, well this is better than nothing and take, you know, starts to like feed off her. Um, uh-huh. In the second, in the second film, it's the bloodstained mattress that Julia's on that Dr. Chenard brings her back from, but we don't see her on a bloodstained mattress in the first film. Am I, am I missing something there? Or is that just a bit of artistic license? I don't know. I would guess it's artistic license that... Because I think the haste disappears as well, doesn't it? At some point, the haste disappears at the end. Spoiler well, alert, yeah. by the way. Spoiler uh, alert. Yeah, in, in Hellraiser 1, the house coll- collapses on top of me. I mean, the whole house is supposed to be like falling down. It's, it's like the, the, the idea of my, my character, I'm about to stab um, Kirsty's boyfriend, who doesn't exist in the book. And uh, the house collapses on top of me. Um, yeah, but you never really see that. But he's a pretty much worthless boyfriend. The only thing that he can do is put a <laughs> cigarette in his mouth and take yeah. it back out without burning himself, <laughs> which I thought was really cool. Yeah, it comes to save her at the very end when she's already done everything. <laughs> and then and then when it's all finished, they go outside, they go outside in the rain or whatever, and they stand there staring into the distance like they're waiting for an Uber. He's got no questions. He's just saw loads of demons. He's seen... <laughs> uh, you know, he's seen a, a scorpion baby demon come at him, and this is the first time he's had seen anything like this in his life. They go outside and just look into the distance like there's an Uber, like they're waiting for an Uber with no questions. It just is have, what it is. You have to remember this was the 1980s, yeah. so women <laughs> at that point in horror films were there to scream, um, look pretty. <laughs> probably take off clothes so clive was deliberately writing this pathetic hero <laughs> character and the heroine was actually that the heroine you know she she was the strong one and he was an absolute wimp and the only other place that was happening that was happening at the time was in the aliens film where, where um Shivani oh, weaver was was this exactly was this strong woman character but that was incredibly rare in the 1980s so it was completely it's so easy retrospectively to look back and think well you know but it was groundbreaking at the time to have these strong female characters yeah oh do you know i still haven't seen alien to this day oh my god i'm too scared really alien scares me alien really scares me it's it's really good the one thing that I think the only thing that really does scare me is the unknown and those alien things. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what the yeah. diet's like. You I'm don't like know that with my son. sleep. Yeah, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, literally children are the new alien. Um, and I don't know whether I get this confused um, from the book and the film and, I, and it's just all melded into one. In the in the book, did they... I think they let Kirsty go. They go, go on, then off you go. But in the film, they're like, now nah, we changed our mind, we'll have you as well. Am I right in thinking in that? Or have I just got my scenes mixed up? I don't know. Um, in, in Harry's a one and two kind of blend in that one, don't they? Because 
the end of Harry Potter one, she's wa- she's walking along and the big um, dragon thing takes off, which was all kind of added. Which is the creepy bloke who eats all the crickets. Now, please, yeah. Simon, tell me, tell me that that man didn't really eat crickets. No, and no, I'm pretty certain. And on a, on a Clive Barker film, he would have been well <laughs> forced, forced to eat live no, crickets. See, no, you see, you have to. I, I know. I worked on at least one Clive Barker film where. Uh, an actor I was working with was eating live earthworms, but of course oh, you have to be you have to be careful because there are animal rights people that what for worms? You know, for worms and crickets. Clive yeah. Barker yeah. doesn't give a shit, does he? <laughs> no, but some people do. So uh, I, I, I'll have to sit on the fence on that one. About human rights? <laughs> Fuck your human rights! Eat that worm. Do you want to get paid? <laughs> You could imagine the conversation, couldn't you? So, Clive, the problem is we've had someone talking about the crickets. I go, right, so he's not so he's not talking about the shagging on the bed. No, they're not yeah. talking about like the hooks in the bloke. They're not talking about the like the wanking and the blood. No, they're talking yeah. about a bloke eating crickets. Yes, that's the issue we've got. <laughs> and that kind of brings us swiftly to the end. Well, actually, just before that. So, well, and your best place to answer this, Simon, because sometimes Hellraiser one, Hellraiser two, and the book kind of molds into one. Were the Cenobites actively trying to kill Kirsty in? in that scene because obviously you had the hook going up the stairs with the blood coming out the wall obviously uh-huh. yourself uh, was killed by the house falling apart i can't uh-huh. remember what happened to chatterer but like what was that scene involving with was it just to get frank was it just to kill everyone that's a very good question that's one i've never been asked i don't know they're leaving Ooh. us already line with uh, with the female going up the wall they're not directly threatening her but they are kind of threatening her having a bit of fun yeah maybe i don't think they're there specifically for her so i don't think they would specifically take her although in hellraiser 2 i can't remember hellraiser 2 now how it starts if they're coming back for her it's the interesting fact is that they did the house that they used which is a real house they actually took the staircase out and they they put in this ridiculous winding staircase which you would never have in a house just to make it harder for her to escape (laughs) (laughs) i just want to say about the the book and uh, clive's writing is absolutely fucking phenomenal it's almost dickensian it's 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 beautiful it's a the novel it's a novella is it called a novella a novella yeah but Every word in there, it's so beautiful to read. I was reading it this evening and every word is there for a reason and every sentence has been thought about and thought about and then gone back and thought about again a few days later and nothing, it's it's like the film, everything is there for a reason and everything is, is thought through and trying to make the, the most out of... Uh, it's beautiful. It's be- he's, a, he's a wonderful writer. The juxtaposition is so strange for me because it's it's actually a beautiful book about uh-huh. a, a horrific story. His it, style, and he's it, obviously so very fucking clever. It was so enjoyable to it. It's like you say, there's no unnecessary filler in there. It's like, no. we, was reading, we was reading a book by... Um, I'm not going to mention his name, but it rhymes with... Heaven Ming, and um, <clears throat> and the book rhymes with uh, mommy, mommy Mockers, and there was so much shit in it, so much shit, and it was so long and so unnecessary, and it was just so fucking bad. I mean, it was, it, it was, it, it's not 
subjectively bad, it is bad. Whereas Clive, this was basically a pamphlet. It was basically a pamphlet, but it had all the necessary details. All of yeah, them, and, and oh, it's just beautiful. The fact, the fact you say that it's so beautiful and so horrific, it's exactly the same as the film. He's because he's writing a love story, but with with stuff in it that is so basic, and that that is it. That is the essence of it. Is that at our essence, we are these animals that we have these basic desires that are. We can't control, and yeah. we will go anywhere to fulfil them. As, and interesting for me, because I'm 61 now, only at a certain age you, you get past that. You get to an age where that doesn't happen. But it certainly um, when you're in the grips of your hormonal years, then you really have very little choice. Um, that That is what is controlling you. I think that's what he's saying. And he's written this love, it's a love story. Hellraiser is a love story. Most of what Clive's right this is a love story. Nightbreed is a love story too. Well, I was going to go uh, before I went on that tangent, which was necessary because it, it, isn't, it does need to be pointed out how beautiful his uh, writing is. But um, in the beginning, it goes into a lot of detail about the ceremony, about the, the box and how he's got candles, he's got dog heads and he's got loads of stuff and he's got all the yeah. necessary precautions yeah. and he goes through this whole procedure whereas um, not Nancy well I'm going to call her Nancy because that's all I can no, think of Kirstie. now Kirsty. Kirsty. she's just sat on the edge of a bed in the hospital ward bored and just happens to have a tinker with it opens it within seconds and you've got these Cenobites turn up and they say well put, you know we're going to fuck you up now whereas, whereas with him with Frank they, were, they, they gave him the option they said what is it you want? They gave him the yeah. option, and he said, "Well, I want the pleasures." And they said, "Are you sure?" Because there's no turning back with her. They said, "What you mean? Are you fucked?" There was, there was no turn. It, I mean, it almost seemed a little bit sexist. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that with with a hospital room, he's she's locked in there, so there's something going on. That hospital room is strange to start with. The doctor is slightly yeah. creepy. She goes yeah. to open the door, and she's locked in. Um, there's something odd going in there. I, I suppose I look. I personally look to that as the fact that she'd experienced the Cenobite. She'd experienced something which was very private and very secret. And having experienced it, there was a price to pay for that. Whether she experienced it because she was seeking it out or by accident, she had to pay the. She still has to pay the price for. They can detect their sins, the sins of the yeah. opener. I know you'd mentioned uh, Nightbreed, uh, which you was in as well, but uh, I think a fun fact for people who didn't know, uh, Craig Schaefer, who played Aaron Boone in um, Nightbreed, he was also in Hellraiser 5. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he was. He's, he's a lovely actor as well. He's a lovely guy. He did a lot of the C, uh, CGI's, I want to say, um, CSI's as well. Yes, yes, he did. I remember that, yeah, because uh, he's got one of those very recognisable faces. Yeah. Uh, Simon, uh, Simon, just for Rich's amusement, uh, what was the name of your character in Nightbreed? Uh, Onaka. What? Not, not, not Onaka. Onaka, no, Onaka. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with Onaka. He was middle class. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen Nightbreed, Richie? Um... If I did, it was a long time ago. I don't remember. Is it worth watching? I know, 
<laughs> Simon's here. And I should say, yeah, I'll definitely go out and watch that. Definitely. It's rubbish. Don't watch it. There's a bloke called, there's a bloke called Onaka and it's rubbish. Don't watch it. <laughs> if, you do, if you do decide to watch it, only watch the director's cut version. Don't watch any other version of it. Okay. Okay. I've always found it difficult to find a British... Uh, the only DVD I could ever well, and we're going back about 10 years ago or so the only DVD I could find was an American version I could never find like the British version which for, for whatever strange reasons that was but I could I could reprogram my cheap DVD player to, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. play to, yeah, uh, to play me, but me I mean, too. it's different now me too to be <laughs> honest I, I had to have a reprogrammed uh, DVD player to, to see it but you can actually see it now you can stream it now and um, oh, you, get the, you can get a, a, a UK version of the Blu-ray as well. Um, interesting enough, my character in the script for for that was female, so he does he, he like he was one of the first person to kind of play around with gender fluidity, I think. But yeah, my character was female. Onaka was Onaka was female in the script. And then Simon. I know. And then the role was offered to Mark Ullman from um, the the singer. The singer. Yeah. Soft Cell. That's very very interesting. So it was offered to him. And then he had was at the time was signing to Sony Records. And they wanted to make him more of a crooner, give him more of a crooner kind of Frank Sinatra image. Is that why something's got on hold of my heart with Gene Pitney came out? Probably. <laughs> that's mental, though. Isn't it? That's mental that Sony Records got involved in his image in a film that's nothing really to do with Sony. Or was the film anything to do with Sony? No, the film wasn't to do with Sony, but because he just signed at the same time with Sony Records, they said being in a Clive Barker film doesn't go with the image that we're trying to push for you. So they pulled him out of the film and then they gave it to me. So that's how I got to be in Night. Happy days. Yeah, yeah most absolutely. definitely. I don't think, um, no spoiler alerts, but um, your final scene. You know, when I watched that, I, I got like a tone of um, uh, like a, a racial element, you uh-huh. know, as if as if you was a black person, so to speak, uh-huh. and the police were like, you know, giving you a, a good going over because you were different to them, so to speak. That's what I, That's what I got from that scene. I think the whole the whole point of the whole film is that the the minorities are persecuted no matter what they are and 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 that we shouldn't fear minorities just because they're different we should embrace them or just leave them to get on with lives because they are no threat the only the only thing that makes them a threat is us by fearing them and that that's still something which is incredibly uh, it's an argument and and something we should be looking at even more so today sadly but yes, um, I was also helped to my final scene by Danny Elfman's again amazing score. So yeah, I'm always very grateful to anybody that puts music music by me. You're right; the score really does help in that situation. But we have reached the end of the Hellbound Heart versus Hellraiser, and this is where the part where I say to Richie, I say, Richie, do you prefer the book or the movie? Well, um, I prefer the book. I prefer the book because do you know what? I- I would go as far as to say, and not just because Simon's here, because I'm, I'm a very honest person. If I thought it was shit, I'd say it was shit. It's probably one of the best written books I've ever read. He's, and I, I, I will definitely go out and seek out all, all of his other books because 
it was kind of like a revelation to me. I've I've never read anything that I mean. Obviously, I've read stuff as good as that. Like, but it's hard for me to explain. Some it, it's it's still modern to me. I know it's eighties, but for someone to have that kind of um, Dickensian type um, feel about his work. You don't really get that anymore very often. Writing is timeless, Richard. That's what you want to say. Yeah, it is, but it's been bastardified over the years as well. And he seems to have kept... Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just really love his work. His, his work's amazing. I, just, I, can't, I can't actually put into words what I feel about what I've read. It's just beautiful. Richie, I should say the next one you should read should be Cabal then, which is the one that Nightbreed is based on, which is okay. a fantastic... Again, it's a short a short book, and it's fantastic. Okay, we'll do that. Uh, Simon, uh, I don't know if you managed to finish the book uh, earlier, uh, but do you, uh, considering you was in the film as well, do you prefer the book or the movie? The book, definitely the book. Um, I think this this. I mean, I think that obviously, uh, you know, I'm very grateful to the movie, and I think the movie is fantastic. But I think any author can say so much more in a book and just just reading the the opening sequences with um with frank and what's going through his head and all the emotions it's so rich and clive gets loads of that into the film but there's only so much you can get and i think any book over a film will 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 touch the human experience more than a film can ever do uh you you see now I was really hoping you'd say the film because I've I've been torn on this question because uh-huh. you you're both right and especially like there's elements in the book like you know the beginning with Frank and and it answered questions for me like what what's this pleasure what is this pleasure because all I can see uh-huh. is pain I can't I can't see any pleasure and when I've read the book I'm oh, I fully understand the film now uh-huh. do you know what do you know what the the book and the film do for me. And um, which which doesn't usually happen with books and films, and I think it's mainly because he uh, the the author w- directed the film. What the film does, that it helps you visualise the book. Oh, hundred yeah. percent, and I think yeah. that really helps that Clive was directing because it's his vision, and yeah. that what makes it. Di- uh, uh, but like for me, the film is like well, it's my second favourite horror film of all time, and so I'm very. G- I'm going to have to go with the film because I love the film so much, even though the book gave me extra bits to make me enjoy the film even more. Even more. And that's why I was a bit sad. I was like, please, someone say the film because like, <laughs> I'm going to be the one. But also, um, uh, uh, Simon, and I think, like, because we ask this question every time, when we read uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, or we, we, we read Madame Doubtfire and then watched the film Mrs. Doubtfire, I think we both agreed, uh, Richie, that Mrs. Doubtfire the film is better than the book which is rare yeah yeah which is rare i think that and maybe matilda we were we were torn on matilda being a better film than the book um but mrs doubtfire definitely is a better film than madame doubtfire the book have you seen matilda the stage version no not yet <gasps> no oh, is it good superb royal shakespeare company mm. yeah i cannot i cannot recommend it highly enough it is amazing with Tim Minshew doing um, a lot, a lot of the uh, work on it as well. That oh really? Lyrics. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. That'll have to be one for me and my daughter then, because she loves Matilda. Oh, have to check. That. I'll definitely to... go and see it if it's still on in town. Go and see it. Oop, it's wonderful. 
Okay, so I mean, I, th- I think I think we've come to the end of uh, the podcast. Uh, just quickly, uh, Simon. Well, not quickly. Take your time, of course. Um, uh, uh, would you like to plug anything coming up? Um, so uh, obviously, the Dark Duties series on um, Amazon Prime, and which I think um, you can get the whole series for five pound forty nine. I believe I'm going to do. Uh, yes. I'm going to do three or four episodes of that tonight. I didn't even know it existed. Okay. Interesting, you talked about Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, so, uh, episode two, I play uh, uh, Mrs. Wiltshire, um, <laughs> who is is also the name of episode two. But you you probably won't know it's me, and it's certainly not supposed to be a man. It's weird, anyway. But it's dark, and it's it's very dark. Uh, so yes, so episodes one to five, episode six, we haven't filmed yet. So yeah, uh, that's Ooh, in, interesting. In progress. Um. Yeah, that's about it for the moment. Do you have anything to add about the film that we might have missed, or or you feel might be interesting to the to the listeners? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. Actually, it's been it's quite it's been quite an interesting conversation actually because it's made me <laughs> kind of revisit places. Like I've talked about this film for like thirty, forty years now, and it's it, this conversation has made me think about it in ways that i've never done so yeah wow. congratulations to both of you <laughs> well thank you very much oh actually so i mean before we go uh, where where can our uh, listeners now followers find you if they want to find you uh, so i'm on um, imdb i have a page there and um uh, which is simon bamford and obviously i've got a facebook page and a twitter page which um i have the name simon bamford in them somewhere and I think most of them say um, a monster since 1986 is my kind of <laughs> That's a very good line. Yeah, very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much for your time. Um, and uh, hope, I mean, maybe we could even get you back on to talk about Nightbreed. Yeah, that would be very cool. That would be very cool. I'll try to be more tech, tech savvy. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's been brilliant, honestly. Um, yeah, so we're at an end. I just want to thank you so much, Simon, for joining us. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Phil. Uh, all the links to for Simon and for us and everything will be in the show notes. So if you want to find us, you can check us out in the show notes. So this has been the Adapted to Screen podcast, uh, Hellraiser verse Hellbound Heart. And until next time, I've been Richie. I've been Phil. And our guest has been... Simon. Thank you for listening, (laughs) if indeed you still are. Good night. Joining me this week, as always, I have my co-host, Phil McCulloch. Hello, Phil. How are you? Richie, hello to you. I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Yes, I'm fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah. Also joining us to talk about all things Hellraiser and Hellbound Heart is, as I stated in the intro, Simon Bamford. Hello, Simon. You have got to be shitting me. <laughs> oh, right. Fuck the intro next time, for fuck's sake. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm hitting all sorts of buttons here. Stop <laughs> pressing buttons. <laughs> <laughs>